Well, good morning again, Overflow. Thank you guys for being here. Can we give our worship team just a hand? I mean, it's all for God. I know they don't do it for their own glory, but you guys are really good. Thank you. And you're such a servant, Joel. Man, Taylor is a lucky woman, dude. They're engaged now, by the way. I didn't know he's engaged. And that's a somebody say about time. I'm just kidding. And look, Taylor's serving on slides. That is a godly couple. We're just so blessed here. Well, guys, we're going to jump right in. This is week five of our series. This is kind of cool. This will make sense here in a second. Wow, that's amazing. Sorry, I get really entertained by the simplest things. We're in week five, the last installment of our series in Bad Vice, talking about the bad advice of some of our biggest biblical heroes. Um, we often study the highlight reels, but throughout the series, we've been studying the lowlight reels, the, the biggest mistakes and blunders of those heroes. And today, we're going to be tra- talking about one of the OGs of our faith, um, literally like top five in the Hall of Fame of faith. Um, y'all know, like this guy was such a big deal, by the way, after he died, when Jesus was doing his three years of ministry, Jesus had like a powwow with some dead guys a couple times. One was in the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up on a mountain and he brings up a guy named Elijah and a guy named Mo. We call him Moses. And like dead Moses, well, not dead, but resurrected, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's a big theological discussion. But like, he's such a big deal. Jesus would like chat with him after he was dead. That's amazing. That's mind blowing. Theologically, we can get into that in your small groups. Chad, just lead them all in what that actually means. But today we're talking about Moses. That's why I have my trusty staff up here. They, they, at the first service I had it leaning here and it fell over like three times. So this was the solution we came up with. But Moses, because Moses was known for, how many of you have seen a picture of Moses with the staff, right? He's always like, ah, Red Sea, you know. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about Moses today. And Moses had like a highlight reel, right? Like Moses like if there was a hall of fame of faith, like a starting five, he was like the power forward or, you know, the point guard, like Moses got it done. Uh, he emancipated via God, the entire Israeli people out of oppression and slavery in Egypt. That's a big deal. He talked to God in the form of a burning bush. He literally took this stick and put it in the Red Sea and it parted. His staff turned into a snake and helped convince Pharaoh to let people go. I mean, Moses saw a miracle after Moses had a highlight reel. It was amazing. They should do a 30 for 30 on him. But thank you. Two of you understood what that was. I appreciate it. Um, But how many of you know Moses had a low light reel too? Moses made some mistakes, like big mistakes. Some of us don't know that Moses was a murderer. Thank you. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. But but for real, that's a big deal. Wait, we don't know that. Like people don't teach us that as much. But and I'm not saying like murderer, like he fought in a war and killed. Like he straight up like murdered a dude. And what's crazy when I read that, like, first off, anybody in here murdered anybody? Just raise your hand. I'm kidding. Don't. Well, maybe do. And we'll handle that. But um, but like my point is, most of us have not physically murdered somebody. And think about like Moses actually did that and God still moved in all those amazing ways in his life. I don't know what you came in here with in your past. I don't know what baggage you have, but I bet it ain't murder, right? And if God can work through Moses, imagine what he could do through you. Imagine what he could do through me. Isn't that amazing? Like the Bible's like therapy to read the Old Testament because you're like, whoo, at least I'm not that bad, right? I mean, just read David. It's insane. Anyways, but like, Inside note, Jesus said, if you've been angry with someone in your heart, you've murdered them in your heart. And so by Jesus's standards, we all deserve the death penalty. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. We're like, oh, that's depressing. But yeah, uh, so we're all like Moses in that way. But, but here's the crazy part. Murder wasn't Moses's biggest mistake. How 
is that not your biggest mistake, right? So today, to end out the series, we are going to jump in to what kept Moses out of the promised land. We're going to jump into Moses' biggest blunder, his most massive mistake, and hopefully we can learn from the bad advice Moses followed and follow the opposite of that, some good advice. And here, here's the last thing I'll say before we jump into it, really, is... The reason we're talking bad advice, guys, because we can laugh at it. Like, we can laugh at funny videos. A couple weeks ago, I shared a story of me getting a speeding ticket, following some bad advice. Chad shared a story. Ah, it's funny. Hindsight's 2020, retrospective. Hey, yeah. But some of us know we've lived long enough and we've made enough mistakes that we know, like, it's not always funny. Like, and in Moses' case, because he followed this bad advice, it kept him from God's promises. And that's why we're talking about this, because us following bad advice can keep us from what God has for us. And it's, it's a serious topic. So I want us to dig in. And it said, like, wise people usually have a lot of experience in life, and they say wisdom is like learning from your experience. But I think true wisdom is not having to experience it yourself, but learning from other people's experiences and learning from other people's failures. Some of us young millennials, Gen Z, were so hard-headed and stubborn. We're like, oh, I gotta live life. And older generations are like, no, you don't. You don't have to make that mistake. Trust me, right? And so what we wanna do is, is learn from the OG here, Moses, and the mistakes he made. So if you have a Bible, open it up. We're gonna be in two primary areas, Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20. Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20. Exodus chapter what? 17. Numbers chapter 20. Nice. That was good. Y'all even said it, it wasn't like 17. It was like 17. I like it. Say it with a smile. And while you turn there, one other thing I want to point out is Moses was known for his staff. Like his staff became an object lesson. Like we can learn a lot from the way Moses interacted with the staff and how God used it. Like God often teaches us via object lessons. Even the nation of Israel is allegorical and metaphorical for the modern day church and or for you and I. So when we read about the nation of Israel and we're like, how could they be so dumb? Side note, God looks at us sometimes. Not, God doesn't think you're dumb, but sometimes we act like the nation of Israel. And he's trying to show us what we'll get if we act like that. When we read about it, it's an object lesson. Even Jesus would teach object lessons. There was this one time Jesus held up a, um, or he talked about like a, a sewing needle. Uh, this is an actual sewing needle. It has that little hole there. It's called the eye of a needle. And Jesus in three out of the four gospels taught an object lesson. And he said, um, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through this hole I'm just going to say that again. <laughs> like He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Like, can we just, like, if we were his audience, we'd be like, what? <laughs> like, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through this than it is for a rich person. Now, let me point out there. Um, when we hear that, we're like, yeah, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, camels. Right? Like, it's so hard for you to get. I just, can I just point out, if you drove here in a car today, if you have a smartphone, if you have AC at your house, if you're not worried about where you're going to eat this afternoon, you're in the top 5 to 1% of the world's wealth. He was talking to you. He was talking to me. We are the richest people in the world in this country. We live in the Disneyland of the world. And so he says to you and I today, it's easier to shove a camel through this than it is for you and me to get into heaven. 
let that sit. Like that's an object lesson, right? And to which we would respond and go, what? That's impossible. That's his point. That was a, see, what's funny is when it comes to object lessons in our faith, oftentimes we as Christ followers or preachers or teachers or whatever, we can get so caught up in the object, we miss the lesson. Because a lot of times, like I've heard preachers be like, well, it wasn't the eye of an actual needle. The eye of a needle was the name of a secret gate in the walls of Jerusalem. And it was a small gate. So for a camel to go through the eye of the needle gate, it would have to kneel down and strip off everything and crawl through, symbolizing how you have to let go of stuff and humble yourself to go into the kingdom of God. That sounds beautiful and all that. But here's the deal. There's no evidence that that was an actual gate or it even actually existed. Sometimes preachers, Chad, we can reach for examples, right? Like, but like that, there's no proof of that. That's pretty much been debunked. Other theologians would say, oh, well, maybe he didn't mean camel. Maybe it was this different Greek word like camellio and it had a whole different. Can I just say it? Like Jesus put it plain. He said what he meant and he meant what he said. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through this than it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. That's what he meant. He was using hyperbole, sarcasm, to make a point, which he often did. The biggest Jewish animal that they had around at the time was a camel, and the smallest thing he could think of opening was the eye of a needle. And he's like, that's how impossible it is. And his point was, it is impossible without him, without Jesus. We'll come back to that. In that same object lesson, like it happens over and over again with the staff and Moses, not the eye of a needle, but maybe a little larger, right? It has like an eye on it too, right? But over and over again, God would teach us with the object of the staff. And so that's what we're going to dig into today in Exodus chapter 17. Y'all ready? Four of you. Awesome. I'm going to do it anyway. Exodus 17. Here we go. It reads, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? Side note, if you've ever led people in any capacity, in a family, on a sports team, in a class group project, in ministry, we've all prayed that prayer. God, what do I do with them? Right? Sorry. I'm just venting a little. Anyways, um, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And not like the Michigan version of stone, like kill him. Um, <laughs> thank you. One person laughed at that. The other of you are like, can he make that joke? Um, yeah, this is the 11 o'clock service. So I feel a little bit looser. It's kind of fun. Chad's like, they're going to fire you. I'm the interim. It was coming anyway. Don't worry. Um, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff. There it is. Everybody on the count of three, say the staff. One, two, three. Take the good old trusted staff. Grab the stick. Let's go. He said, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. Hey, this, this staff that turned into a snake before Moses, this staff that I told you to pick up with the burning bush, this staff that you stuck in the Red Sea and it parted the waters, the staff that you put in the Nile and it turned into blood, this trusted, faithful tool of the trade. Take your staff. You know what works. Take it in your hand. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Arab, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. What? Okay, you come in here thirsty today. And you're like, Chad, Pastor Chad, we're thirsty. And Chad's like, the Lord told me to take this mic stand and strike this chair and out of it will flow coffee. You would be like, this is the weirdest church ever. Welcome to the church of Israel. 
Like over and over again, God would tell Moses to do things that made no sense. Side note, when you're praying and you feel like God tells you to do something and it doesn't make any sense to you, that's often an indicator it may be God. Because the Bible says that God's wisdom is like foolishness to the world and our wisdom is like foolishness to him. So there is this like dichotomy there where you're like, this doesn't make any sense. So he tells Moses, take your staff, strike the rock, water will come out. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa and Maribah. I still don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, a lot of reading, but did you catch the narrative? That's example one, Exodus chapter 17 of a miracle. Moses, grab the staff. People are thirsty. Take the staff. Hiya, strike the rock. Water came out of a rock. And the people are like, go Mo, go Mo, right? Like, and they got their water. But even in the miracle, there were mistakes. Even in the good Seeing that we see here, there is bad advice that we can draw out of this. So before we even get to Moses's biggest blunder, I want to look at what some bad advice is in this passage, because we see that it didn't go perfectly well. The first thing we see here is it said the people came to Moses and they quarreled with Moses and each other. And it uses the word grumbled against God. When you read the New Testament, some of you guys that that read your Bibles, in the New Testament, Paul and a lot of the writers will use that word grumble. They're like, stop grumbling with one another, stop grumbling. That's an intentional word to throw the Jewish reader's mind back to this. When we complain against one another, when we're arguing and divisive, we're grumbling. And what God is trying to show us in this and in the New Testament writing is we look like the nation of Israel. We look like them. And here's the sad part. The journey for the nation of Israel from Egypt to the promised land could have been done in like 11 days. But it took 40 years. You know why? Because they grumbled against the Lord. And God said, you are a complaining and grumbling people. So what did he do? He waited for an entire generation to die, to get rid of the complainers because he couldn't use complainers in the promised land. He needed conquerors in the promised land. But overflow, may it never be said of us that God has to wait on us to die or leave to use the next generation. Woo! Come on, Gary. That was a good amen back there. May we be the generation that doesn't grumble, complain. And I'm not speaking to you as our church, but let's champion unity. Let's champion these things. But it said they grumbled against God. So bad advice number one, bad advice number one I wrote down, my problem is my leader's responsibility. My bad advice, my problem is my leader's responsibility. Some of you are like, but I thought that was true, <laughs> right? Like many of you know this, you know this person at work. Every time they have an issue, they're like, boss, do this for me, do that. Like, why are we, many of us have kids like this, you know, and the sign of maturity is when a kid stops coming to you with all their problems, but rather doesn't follow this bad advice. But let me just go ahead and give you the antithesis of it. Bad advice, my problem is my leader's responsibility. Good advice, take responsibility for your problem. Woo, let's just go there. But let me give you some great advice. Bad advice, my problem is my leader's responsibility. Good advice, take responsibility for your problem. Here we go, great advice, don't just see a problem, be the solution. Somebody say, I'm the solution. Say it like you mean it. Say, I'm the solution. Often, if God gave you the ability to see the problem, it's because he's also given you the ability to solve the problem. And this happens in so many areas in life. 
like so many areas. I'll just speak to like ministry, church world. I've been in the church world now for about two decades, like actually working in church. And um, some of you are like, how is that possible? Um, other of you are like, yeah, that makes sense. You look 50. But um, no, I started ministry when I was four years old. It was great. Um, <laughs> but in the ministry world, this is how this fleshes itself out. Again, my problem is my leader's responsibility. A lot of people, most people are really good at identifying problems. How do we know that? Because we love competition reality TV shows. That's a great example of it. How many of you have ever seen American Idol, The Voice, America's Got Talent? You know what's funny? How many of us are incredible vocalists? Like you could just sing the roof off here. If you are, Joel would like to talk to you after service. We want you up here, right? Most of us can't, but we watch these shows and we're the first. Nah, they were a little pitchy on that one. They were definitely, you know, they're a little pitchy. Meanwhile, we can't even come close to what they're doing because we're really good at identifying problems, right? It doesn't take a leader to identify a problem. Leaders solve problems. Leaders are the problem solver, are the solution. One of our leadership mantras at our church down in Jamaica is I am the solution. Now, Jesus is the ultimate solution, but we have Jesus via the Holy Spirit, and so we can be the solutions. And in church world, this is how it fleshes itself out. People will come up to the pastor, they'll come up to Joel, and they'll be like, hey, Joel, you know what we should do? They'll go, you know what we should do with the worship ministry? You know what we should do at Overflow? And you know what they mean when they say that? Hey, Joel, you know what you should do? That's what they mean. I've identified a problem in our community, in our church, and I wanted to bring it to your attention. You're welcome. <laughs> we do that all the time, right? And one of my favorite things as a pastor, when somebody does that to me now, I just smile and I get really excited. I'm like, that is a great idea. Wow, wow. And then they finish and I go, man, phenomenal idea. Let me know what you need. Let me know what you need. But for two reasons. A, God's given you the ability to see the problem, so you probably have the ability to solve it. B, the role of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Check it out. That doesn't excuse us from hands-on ministry, but our primary function is to equip you guys for the hands-on work of the ministry. So when you have an idea or you see a problem, let us know what you need. Let's run after it. At Overflow, it gets me so stoked when it, like a church get the, gets this and they don't think witnessing to their neighbor or they don't think inviting someone to church or they don't think cleaning up the park is the pastor's responsibility or the church staff's responsibility, but rather they go, problem solver, let's go. Man, when a church gets that, it is contagious and it will wreck the kingdom of darkness for in a great, great way. Oh, it's so fun. Like one of the examples I gave in the first service here at Overflow, like coming out of COVID, our student guy ended up getting another job and now he's moved down to Tampa. We're cheering him on. But in that season, it was like, okay, so what's the right move for our student ministry? And we were in COVID and now that schools, so like a lot of families have been like, man, it'd be great if we had a student ministry. It'd be great if we had a student ministry. And so I've just kind of like been aggressively looking for the right person, but I've kind of been waiting for that one adult to go, hey, until we get the guy or the girl, can I be them? Because our students need it. I see a problem. Why don't I be the solution? Is that, that got quiet. But you know what I mean, right? Like y'all, y'all feel me. This is an example. Uh, is, I, y'all want me to keep going? I have like a list. No, I'm kidding. I won't. But, but my point is when we see problems, it's because God has given us the eyes to see it. So possibly we could be the solution. Bad advice. Number one, my problem is my leader's responsibility. Good advice. Take responsibility for your problem. Great advice. Don't just see a problem. Be the solution. But there's some other bad advice right here in this first narrative. It said that Moses gave it two negative names because they quarreled and tested God. Bad advice. Number two, test God. 
test God. God literally says later in the Old Testament, do not lay a fleece before me. Because there was this cat in the Old Testament that wanted God to answer something. And so he put out a sheep's fleece and he was like, hey, let everything else have dew on it in the morning, but not the sheep's fleece. And it happened. And then he was like, ah, I still don't know. That could have been a fluke, which is crazy. And then he said, now let the fleece have dew on it and everything else be dry. And it happened. And he was like, okay, I guess it's God. And God said, never do that again. He literally was like, do not lay a fleece before me. Do not test me. And we hear that and we're like, but we don't test God. Like, I'm not like, you know, hey, hubby, grab the staff and see if we can strike a rock and water will come out. If God's real, water will come out of that rock. Like, we don't do that. But here's the modern day version of it. We pray negotiation prayers. You're like, what are you talking about? I mean, like, God, if you get me out of the speeding ticket, I'll never miss church again in my life. Right. God, if you get me out of this debt, I'll never not tithe. All right. We're like, we, we pray these negotiation prayers. God, if you do this, then I will do this. That's testing God. Can I just be straight up with you? God can never do another thing for you, and he's still worthy of all, every atom and energy in your being. He could never do another thing. He could kill me right now, and he would be worthy of all my praise all the same. Because I didn't deserve to live in the first place. This breath, I didn't earn it. He gave it. And so, like, there's nothing. I mean, it's cool when God does bless like in, in two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'll go ahead and give my sermon away. You don't even have to attend that weekend. I hope you do. But like what I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they have what I call an even if faith. In other words, they look back and said, look, look, God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to not praise him. We're only going to praise God whether he saves or he doesn't save, whether he gets me out of the ticket or I get the ticket, whether I get the job or I don't get the job, whether they leave the marriage or they stay in the marriage. I am not bailing on God because he doesn't bail on me. We don't test God. Now, uh, let me small caveat asterisk to that. There is one place in all of scripture where God stares down the barrel of antiquity eye to eye with all of us and says, I dare you to test me in this area. There's one area God gives us permission to test him. You know where it is? Come on, look at it, second row. I love you guys. Every right here. Come on, y'all can even go front row next week. I give you permission. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, he, the one area God says test me is then the tithe. Now this is not a money talk, but that tells you how serious He is about that. Woo! All right, I'll let that one go. So bad advice test God. So the good advice would be trust God. I know it's a, it sounds elementary. But where in your life, where in our lives, are we still testing God? God, if you do this, then I'll believe. God, if you make this happen, then I, rather than just trusting him, just trusting him. And so we see in this first narrative in Exodus chapter 17, some really bad advice, even though God eventually worked a miracle. Now, fast forward, Numbers chapter 20. This is almost 40 years later. Same leader, same group of people, and you're about to see, same problem, slightly different outcome. Numbers chapter 20, it reads, now there was no water for the congregation. They've been through this before, 40 years later. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. I just want to pause on that for a moment. That is different than what we just read in Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the people came against Moses. In Numbers chapter 20, it said they came against Moses and against Aaron. What does that tell us? Moses was a great leader because he wasn't doing it alone. He was raising up a second and a third in command in Aaron and in Joshua. And to the point that Aaron had become such a leader that when they had a problem, it wasn't just Moses' problem anymore. It was Moses and Aaron's problem. That shows you that Aaron became an owner, not a renter of God's blessings. 
He was a part of the team of the leadership. Guys, I can hear it in, in, our, in a church in a heartbeat if, they, if people are owners or renters. Because people will be like, oh, Overflow Church, oh, they, oh, that, oh, they. And they turns to we and our when you become an owner of what God's doing here. When people go, ah, oh, did you hear Overflow Church did X, Y, Z? Like, your name gets dropped with that when you're an owner here, when you're a part of it. And Aaron had become an owner of walking and stewarding the promises of God. And so it said they came against Moses and Aaron. And side note, I would just say like this, if you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. Like when it comes to like anything Jesus related, outside of prayer and solitude and prayer, and even sometimes there, it's good to pray with people, but like we're called to make disciples. The root word of disciples, discipline, it means like we are showing people the way of Jesus. Here's a better way I like to say it modern day. We are apprentices of the way of Jesus. We apprentice under him and we invite people to apprentice under us and him. And that takes people to do that. So like if you're leading a ministry, don't do it alone. If you're leading a small group, have a co-leader, have a co-pilot. Even Moses had a co-pilot named Aaron. Sorry, I can keep going on that, but I won't. So bad advice, do it alone. Good advice, go with people, good people. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? So dramatic, they brought the cows into it. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Why did they mention pomegranates? And there is no water to drink. Same problem. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. They went to church. They went and got the presence of God. They went and prayed. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff. Everybody say the staff. Take your trusted old traditional tool. Take the staff. Moses was like, yeah, I know this play. I ran this play. Pick and roll. Let's go. Staff. Here we go. He said, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water from for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I have given them. Biggest mistake Moses ever made. What kept him from the promised land was right there. Did you catch it? Did you see the difference? Exodus chapter 17. People are thirsty. Moses, help us. They're complaining and grumbling. Moses, the mighty Moses, praise to God. God says, take your staff, strike the rock. Moses, hi-yah, ha, water. Miracle. Numbers chapter 20, 40 years later. Ah, we have no water. Ah, Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron, go to God. God, what should we do? God says, take your staff, speak to the rock. He comes to the rock and in his anger, he gets mad at the people. And did you catch what he said? He said, shall we, Moses and Aaron, shall we bring water from this rock? Not God. See this subtle shift? But then what did he do? He took his trusted faithful, traditional tool that he knew would work and he struck it instead of speaking to it. But here's the crazy part, church. It worked. 
water came forth, and the nation of Israel drank. You know why that's, that scares me? You know why that scares me? Because it means just because it's working doesn't mean it's God's will. Just because the church is growing doesn't mean it's the way God wants it to. Just because you got the promotion doesn't necessarily mean that's where God wanted you. Success is not always an indicator of God's will. This comes directly opposed against the prosperity gospel. Oh, you must be in God's will. Look, you're rich and you have everything you want. Often that's one of the enemy's greatest ploys to get you away from God because it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is a rich person to get in the kingdom of heaven. Because it's working doesn't mean it's always God's will. That's scary. And it, and it, and it just, like, this is such a harsh penalty. Right? Like, he, he got one thing wrong. He didn't speak to it. Why? Why such a harsh penalty? 40 years leading these dumb people. Sorry. <laughs> leading these crazy people. 40 years in the wilderness. And like before that, it was 40 years before the burning bush. And then he went through the whole emancipation process. I mean, Moses put in the work and he gets all the way to the edge of the promised land. And because he doesn't talk to a rock, he doesn't get it. But you got to understand the greater perspective. Again, even the nation of Israel is an object lesson for you and I. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. What God was showing us, the nation of Israel was thirsty and they were about to die in their thirst. And what did God tell Moses to do? I want you to strike the rock. Who is the rock? Jesus is the rock of our salvation. And what did Jesus say? All you who are thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. God was painting a picture of the Messiah to come with the rock saying your thirst will only be quenched by the rock of your salvation and it must be struck down and broken for you to receive that nourishment. But fast forward, same problem. He said, don't strike it again. Why? Because every time you sin, Jesus does not have to be crucified again. We, the rock of our salvation only has to be struck down once. So he said, no, 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 no. Once it's been struck, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is speak to him. And so God was painting a picture of his son, the Messiah, to come, the rock of our salvation. And Moses, in his anger, in his disobedience, ruined the metaphor. But then God, what the enemy means for evil, God can use for good. God brought in another metaphor, which is that Moses represented the law and the law does not get us into prom God's promised land. The law does not get us into heaven, but rather Moses representing the law in the old covenant did not take them into the promised land. Who did? Joshua, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus' name. Jesus gets us into the promised land, not the law, not commandments. So God can still work out our mistakes. But you see, it was a much bigger deal than just speaking to a rock. God was painting a picture for generations to come. And it raises the question, what in your life is God trying to paint a picture through? What in our lives are we missing out on because we're following the same bad advice? See, the bad advice is the title of my message. Y'all didn't know this was all an intro. Here we go. No, <laughs> you're like, oh God, no. <laughs> it's okay. The title of my message and the bad advice Moses followed here was if it ain't broke, don't fix it. How many of you have heard that before? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, implicitly, that is not bad advice by itself. There are things in life where it's like, hey, if it's working, let it work. 
But in this case, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Wow, that was a lot of sweat. Sorry, that like flew off my hand. Um, If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Here, Moses said, I know the staff works. I know the tool makes it happen. So even though God told me to do something different, I'm going to rely on the tool, not the tool giver. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, bad advice, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Good advice, simple, listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. Listen, Linda. Listen. Right? I know it sounds elementary and simple, but, oh, because we do this in every area of our lives. Like, again, I'll just speak to church world. In church world, we get so caught up in our staffs, so caught up in the tools. Like, church way back in the day, you know, when they first brought an organ into the church, it was like heretical. It was heresy. Like people left the church because they brought an organ in. They were like, that is rock and roll. That has no place in the presence of God. An organ, you heretics. And then, right, that sounds silly, right? And then they brought a piano into churches. Oh, Chad, you should have saw. I mean, people, piano, two, two musicians, no. Like churches split over this. Then decades later, you, you won't guess what people did. Decades later, some people wanted to take the organ out of the church. They're like, ah, oh, we don't really play organ much anymore. Let's get rid of it. And people freaked out. People left churches. You can't have church without an organ. Wait, I thought we couldn't have church with an organ. Oh, we're fixating on the tool. Oh, we missed the point. Right? It's crazy. They brought drums in. Oh, Lord have mercy. The one instrument that was all throughout the Bible. We get really mad when that comes in the church. Drums and cymbals all throughout the Bible. Can I get an amen? amen. That's why I became a drummer. No. <laughs> but, but like you pray, people, here, here's another. I'll just give you another example. Like, I know this isn't an overflow, but maybe y'all know some churches like this. Like, y'all know like people have left churches because they got rid of pews. Like, it's not church without my bench. That's my pew. Pews. Pews. People are like, no. I wonder sometimes God's like, you guys are obsessing over a stick. You're obsessing over a tool, over a tradition. And you're missing the point. In church world, we do this all the time. And churches split and quarrel. And it, ugh, it's the stack, it's the staff. We know this works. We got to reach students. You know what we should do? Back in the 80s, we would do a tent revival. We would get a big old, anybody remember tent revivals? Hey, I'm for me some tent revival. That stuff was fun. But like, let's be honest. If we got a tent and we went and got like a 70-year-old evangelist and we sang old hymns, are we going to have a youth revival in Benton Harbor? No, they'll probably run from here. They'll be like, I ain't got it. Well, that was weird, right? Why? Because what worked in the past isn't always going to work in the future. Now, sometimes God may be calling us back to things of the past. But again, are we listening to the Lord? Listen to him. Now, some of you out there are going, well, I've never heard the voice of God. Can I just just like let it out there? Like neither have I. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Never, like Corey, like never. 
but I have heard from the Lord. Sometimes I think preachers, we make the mistake, we'll get up here and we'll be like, God told me, God told me, God told me. And if you're sitting out there in one of these seats, you're like, well, I've never heard God's voice. Maybe I'm not a good Christian. Maybe I'm not even saved. Like, I've never heard. I, I think that can sometimes be manipulative, but it can be misconstrued. Like, how do we hear from God? Three simple things I wanted to throw out there to you. Pray, read, listen. Pray, read, listen. Say it with me. Pray, read, listen. Say it again. Pray, read, listen. Pray. All prayer is is talking with God. Not talking to God. Talking with God. Big difference. Like, please let us not be like the nation of Israel. When we only go to God if we need something. God, we're thirsty. God, the marriage is falling apart. God, I need money. God, uh, my health is bad. God, I, like God is our ever-present help in a time of need. He is our helper. We should cry out to him, but he is not a cosmic vending machine that we go to for our blessing every time we just need something. And when we don't need something, we just leave him against the wall. Like what if the nation of Israel didn't follow the bad advice we talked about first? My, my problem is my leader's responsibility. What if they like, took the entire wilderness and experience as a growing opportunity. And like, imagine the first time they had no water. And instead of coming and complaining to Moses, they came to Moses and they said, hey, Mo, hey, first off, you're a great leader. Like, we're still freaking out over the Red Sea. That We'll never forget about that. That's amazing. But hey, just want to let you know, there is a problem. We've ran out of water. But we, we also, we, we've taken some steps. First off, we've designated 10 search parties that have gone out to the surrounding areas to see if they could find an oasis or a spring or something like that. We're looking. Second, we have a leader from each of the tribes that have put together small groups that are petitioning the Lord in prayer day and night, asking God what he would like us to do to solve this problem. Third, we have a few teams going around conserving all the water we have and rationing it so we can last as long as we can. Now, Moses, those are the solutions we've brought to the problem. Is there anything you want us to stop doing and start doing? Could you imagine? Like Moses would have been like, no, that straight up. That, yeah, you got it. <laughs> like, like this is just, it's, it's entirely different. We're not relying on the tools. We're not complaining. We're going, hey, I am the solution. And then Moses gets to actually lead them in God's grace. And here's my point. Are we just crying out to God when we need things in the valleys? Or are we also crying out to God when things are good? Are we praying continually? Hey, God, man, I have an exam today. Please help me. <laughs> Hey God, big day at work. I would love your presence and your help. Hey God, honestly, it's been a great week. Thank you. That's a cool prayer. Hey God, like marriage is tough right now. We really need your help. Hey God, it's been amazing lately. Whatever you're doing with my wife, thank you. You know, like whatever, like praise him in both seasons. Pray with him. But I said, pray, read. If you want to hear from God, man, read his word. Read his word. Just get it in you, and all of a sudden you'll be walking, you'll be thinking, and God will put that verse in your head, and you'll go, oh, that was for me. But then I said, listen, pray, read, listen. Many of us, our prayer life is just us petitioning God or asking God for things. And again, please, talk to him, ask him, let him know the desires of your heart. That's good. But I wonder how much our week would change this week if, let's say tomorrow, when you stop and pray, whether it's in the morning, at your coffee break, whatever, Maybe read a couple verses, then ask God for the things you need his help with, but then just try, just, I dare you to try this this week. Hey God, thanks for listening. I know I usually do all the talking, um, but hey, just for the next few moments, 
will you open my spiritual ears up, my heart up? And God, for the next few moments, I'm down for whatever you want to say, I'm listening. So I'm just going to listen. Some of us have never heard from God because we don't stop and listen to Him. Here's a trick. Put this away for five minutes. I'm not like one of those like religious Pharisees who are like, phones are evil. No, they're great. Like read the Bible on it then do not disturb mode and just set it down two minutes. Some of you, I sat here for 10 seconds just now, not even, and it made you uncomfortable. You're like, oh, it's quiet. I guarantee you, man, in that still space, God can speak to you. Meditate on his word. Listen to him. But what's funny is God often has to get our attention. And the way he does that is with struggle. He allows us, when we aren't walking with him, he knows what's best for us is the closest proximity to him. Side note, like if, if the biggest blessing of your life is the presence of God and you only go to God when you're in trouble, could you not then look at the troubled seasons as the biggest blessing seasons? But again, side note, maybe God allows you to go through that because that's the only way you give him attention. Like, I don't know about you, but in my darkest seasons, or when I'm crying out to God the most and I'm hearing the most from him. And it's like that in humanity, guys. Like we're in a dark season right now, right? Like this whole pandemic thing. I know in America, we're like out of it. Like, you know, Alabama versus A&M last night, 100,000 people like, woo, like and other countries are watching this. Like, what, they're all gonna die. What are they doing? Like, it's crazy. But the pandemic is not done around the rest of the world, but it's just been a dark couple years. For humanity it's been a really dark time but but like i truly believe like we're on the verge of a second renaissance like i really believe that and when i say that you're like what do you mean like for you history buffs out there you know what i'm talking about like we as humanity back in the 13 1400s went through like a cultural scientific boom of creativity and, and if you're familiar with the renaissance do you know what came right before the renaissance yeah mo mo most people don't know this but in a in 1346 to 1353, there was something called the Black Death, the bubonic plague. And the bubonic plague killed conservatively, it killed up to 70 million people. Some experts say it was actually closer to probably 200 million people. In five years, 200 million humans died. To put that in perspective, COVID has killed almost 4 million. Could you imagine? Our people, just great, a few great-great-great-grandfathers away from us, went through a dark season where up to 200 million people died in five years. That's a pandemic. But you know what happened in this darkness? The scientists, the painters, the creatives, they all were locked inside because they didn't want to get sick and not being distracted by culture and their job. All of a sudden they started focusing down and what came out of one of the darkest seasons of humans history, what came out of the black plague was the cultural renaissance. We got art, we got science, we got inventions. That's where we get names like Michelangelo and Raphael and Da Vinci. That all came in the Renaissance, and the Renaissance came from the Black Plague. But do you know what also came out of the Renaissance? The Protestant Reformation. 
the Protestant Reformation was when the church came and said, hey, the way we've been doing it isn't the way God's calling us to do it in the future. And the church started to embrace culture and science and creativity. And the church, boo, if you are Wesleyan, if you are Baptist, if you are Methodist, if you are any pretty much North American denomination other than Catholic, if you are any of these, you can trace your spiritual lineage all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation came out of the Renaissance. Renaissance came out of the darkest, one of the darkest seasons of human history. And the church just said, hey, we're open to doing something new, God. We're listening. That's why like we are coming out of the, I believe we're on the verge of a second Renaissance. Guys, this isn't an endorsement, but like if you watch the Grammys this last year, or the VMAs, I have never seen creativity like that. I have never seen artistic style and like it is booming. And then in the scientific community right now, guys, we have private citizens building rocket ships and going to space. You live at a time where if you work hard enough and make enough money, you can cruise up in space. You talk about a winner. I mean, things are booming right now. And may it not be said of the church of overflow that we were so caught up in our traditions of the past that we miss what God is trying to do in the future. Let us not hold on to the tool, but rather the tool giver. Let's not get so caught up in the way that we forget the way maker. Let's not get fixated on the location of the church, but rather the destination in heaven. Let's not get so caught up in a building and forget about the builder. It's never been about the stick, about the tool, about their tradition. It's about him. It reminds me of that sewing needle. See, Jesus was saying the same thing. It's easier for a camel to go through this than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Why? Because wealthy people don't rely on God. They rely on their tool of wealth. They think their money will solve their problems. They think their money, what they know works, will solve their problems. Jesus said, no, 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 it's impossible without listening to me, without being open to what I'm saying. It, it reminds me, th this needle, there was a, in the 90s, um, the U.S. launched a, a new space program, and uh, it was when we put the Hubble Space Telescope into space. And I'm like a science physics nerd, so excuse me, those of you that aren't, but like, we put this, the Hubble Space Telescope in space, and and we put it up there for the sole purpose of pointing at a star and snapping a photo. And then we would point it at another light area, at another star and snap a photo. And we would point it at another star and snap a photo and another star. And that's what the Hubble was designed to do. But in 1995, Robert Williams became the president of the Hubble Space Foundation. And he had an idea. And his idea was, what if we took the Hubble telescope and instead of pointing it at the light, what if we pointed it at the darkness? And the scientific community laughed at him. They were like, bro, that is not what it was built to do. It's not what it does. Why would you want to aim it at nothing? We have all this light to look at. Why would you want to look at darkness? And they tell us, scientists tell us that if you hold a sewing needle up and look through it, that's about the size space in the night sky that the Hubble can capture. Just that much. But after petitioning and petitioning, people making fun of him, eventually they gave him like some extra time. They're like, look, when no one's using it, you can do your little darkness experiment. And Robert Williams pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at one of the darkest parts of the night sky. 
And the image that came back changed the scientific community in the world forever. It's called the Hubble Deep Field Space Image. And it looks like this. And in the size of a needle, we saw that. Those aren't stars. Those are galaxies, hundreds and thousands and millions of stars and this much space in the darkness. And the scientific community took a step back and said, the universe is way bigger than we thought. And Christ followers took a step back and said, God is so much bigger than I imagined. it all came from a shift of not doing what was always done instead of focusing on the light and looking at the light seeing what light can be found in the darkness overflow those watching online in here maybe this week what would happen if you just listen to God say God I'm listening and I know this is what I always do I always eat with these ladies at work at lunch Maybe Tuesday you're telling me to eat with them. God, I always go to this restaurant. I always do this. I always handle conflict this way. But maybe instead of going to what I'm comfortable with or going to what's always been done or relying on the same tools I always have or always focusing on the light and the same friends, what if I pointed at the darkness? What if there's that place in the community that I'm afraid to go? Say, hey, go make a friend there. I wonder what light we would find if we don't get caught up in the tool, but rather the tool giver. If we listen to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, I just, I thank you for the people that are here today. Thank you that we've had the privilege of their time and attention. But more than that, God, thank you for the privilege of your time and your attention. And God, thank you for the staff. Thank you for that object lesson. Thank you for the needle. Thank you for the telescope. Thank you for the bubonic plague. Thank you for COVID. Because what the enemy meant for evil, you can use for good. And God, in, the, in this dark season for humanity, maybe even some of us in here, it's not a COVID thing. Maybe some of us are struggling with depression. Maybe there's family issues going on, emotional issues. God, I, like, God, in my own life, like, there's just so much swirling around. And Father, I just pray, maybe as we sing this last song, that you would speak. Maybe speak in a new way to some of us. We sang earlier that you would bring new wine. And we thank you that when we come to your altar, your arms are open to us and that we can keep coming and we can keep coming and we can keep talking, not to you, but with you. And God, you are continually speaking. And God, I pray that overflow would be a place, would be a church, would be a group of people who always have our ear to you. That don't get so caught up in our traditions and tools that we miss you, God. Thank you that all we have to do is speak to the rock. Thank you, God, that all we have to do is ask you for living water and you bring it. Jesus, I just pray that people would hear you this week. I pray that I would hear you this week. And we thank you that when we listen, you do speak. In your name we pray.